Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, Lee Garrett's effort to escape his enemies and take a romantic holiday with Candace Ross has gone tragically wrong, leaving Candace injured in a horrific explosion. Now, here's Chapter 21. It wasn't an accident. Cheryl Davis looked weary and felt worse as she watched Lee slump across the desk. You know that for sure? Already? The fire marshal's office in Aurelia sent somebody up, called in a specialist on propane appliances, too. The stove was booby-trapped. Not that hard to rig, apparently. Our FIU is doing their own investigation. Looks like the intruder found a window that wasn't fully latched and managed to jimmy it open. One clear boot print on the floor under the window, a Kodiak, one of the most common boots around. The rest of the scene was pretty well trampled by the time we got there, and outside the snow had been falling for at least three hours. No usable footprints or tire tracks. Lee had a cup of coffee in his hand at an angle just shy of spilling. A tremor passed through his body. We're checking for fingerprints, but it looks like the perp used gloves again. The remains of the stove are being sent to the labs in Toronto. I'll let you know if they find anything. We knew it couldn't be a coincidence. He stood and drifted over to the window. It looked out over Brady Street toward the tarred, flat rooftop of the arena, spotted with dirty snow, and the surrounding parking lots with their heaved asphalt. The sky was pasty and mottled. Which means that I'm to blame. Don't take others with you, he said. But I didn't listen. God help me, I didn't listen. Come on, Lee, the only one to blame is the prick who's doing this. He's the one who hurt her, not you. I don't understand it. Why did he suddenly decide to attack me through her? He didn't. Davis rifled through the papers in front of her. The propane expert thinks the perpetrator had extinguished the pilot light, which would have shut off its gas feed automatically. Ms. Ross wouldn't have smelled anything. The stove was rigged to explode when somebody tried to relight it, and probably only on the second or third try. She looked into his face. I don't know about your family, but if a gas appliance like that doesn't light right away, I call my husband. I could do it myself, but I'd bet most couples are the same, and a neo-Nazi would expect that. Ms. Ross just may have been too independent for... Anyway, I'm sure you were the target, if that really makes you feel better. When he made a stop at his apartment, he called Bruno. The man had been beside himself, fearing that Candace's injuries might have been because of something he'd neglected. It was hard for Lee to explain the truth, and he almost didn't get through it. He apologized for bringing destruction into Bruno's idyllic hideaway. We're not responsible for all the evils of the world, my friend. You just look after that special lady of yours. She looks like a keeper. Lee's throat tightened again, and it was a few seconds before he could utter a last thanks and hang up the phone. He hadn't gone to work. That would have been inconceivable. Alice told him to take a few days off and keep her posted. The hospital wouldn't allow him to stay overnight with Candace, but she'd been sedated anyway. The image of her lying under a sheet like a corpse was etched into his brain. The elevator regurgitated him onto a hospital floor like every other, marked by forgettable names and unforgettable odors. Green was the color of life everywhere else, but here it had the power to consume dreams. Candace had a room to herself for the time being. She looked much the same as the day before, bandages still covering her eyes. 
When she reacted to his footsteps, it was a fresh shock for him to remember that now he had to treat her the same way she had taught him to treat Paul Schwartz. "'Candace, it's Lee,' he said softly, walking to the side of the bed. "'How are you doing?' "'Lee, hi,' she said weakly. The few places with exposed skin looked shiny from ointments of some kind. Her hair was pulled back and covered with a bonnet, but much of it around her face had been clipped away. "'It hurts, but I can manage.' She licked dry lips, and he saw a glass of water with a bent straw, so he put it to her mouth. She sipped gratefully and said, "'How do I look?' Tears sprang to his eyes. It took a moment before he could answer. "'You look like the most beautiful woman in the world, just like always.' He sat lightly on the edge of the bed, looking for any place he could touch her for reassurance. He laid a hand gently on her shoulder. "'What have the doctors said?' Well, I have a lot of burns, but they could have been much worse. A surgeon, Dr. Forrestal, said I might get away without any scarring. The heat was bad, but I was blown away from it. Something like that. I guess I was lucky. She tried to laugh, but it choked off. He wanted so badly to hold her and tell her everything would be all right. Is there any chance I'll be able to see again? It's what I wanted to know, too. She hesitated, as if unwilling to face the words again. They don't know. The actual burns to my eyes should heal quickly, as long as the drugs prevent infection. That's not what... That's not what's making me blind. It might be something called burn encephalopathy. It happens sometimes with burn victims, even mild burns. They don't know why. She rasped a difficult breath. So they can't say if it will ever heal. That means there's hope, though, he said. She shook her head limply. I've seen cases like this, worked with the people. I've never seen one of them regain their sight. Her words were appalling for him to hear. How much more terrible must they be for her to say? I'm so sorry. I'm so... He tried to choke off a sob. Don't blame yourself. It was an accident. Her head twitched upward. It was, wasn't it? He swallowed hard. No. The stove was rigged to explode, but I was supposed to be the victim, not you. I wish to God I had been. Her bandaged face was frozen in shock, unwilling to believe, unable not to. A tremor of her lips spread shudderingly down her body. Her nostrils flared with the catch of breath, and he realized that the sightless eyes were crying. Finally, her voice came as if from the bottom of a well. Please leave. I need to be alone. For the first time in a long time, he looked for comfort in a bottle of scotch, but it wasn't there. Sunk crookedly in his battered sofa bed, he took a long look around his domain. God, it wasn't much. The precious life he'd been so afraid of losing now seemed a poor measure of existence. He hadn't really known fear until he felt fear for another, more precious than himself. The voice of a small child inside told him he was a victim. He didn't deserve what had been done to him. The voice of the adult knew better. The ordeal of the past weeks was out of proportion with whatever he'd done to his persecutors. It must be. Yet if there were a cosmic ledger of life, he still had a lot to account for, a karmic debt of substantial weight. He could accept that. What he couldn't accept was that Candace had paid such a terrible price for his sins. Where was the justice in that? She must feel the same way. Having him near could only remind her of the unfairness of her condition. Perhaps it would be best to leave her alone, 
give her time to sort things out. The doctors had left a small door open for Hope to enter, but she wouldn't need the complication of a relationship with a man who'd brought disaster into her life, disguised as joy. He should leave her alone for a few days. Except he couldn't. Before he'd finished his coffee the next morning, he was walking to his car and driving to the hospital as if controlled by a force beyond his own will. As he stepped out of the elevator and turned toward her room, he was pulled up short by the sight of a woman sitting near the door who rose at his approach. Neatly dressed in blue and white calico with a small string of pearls at her neck, she had eyes that were immediately familiar, but without any of the warmth he was used to seeing in them. "'You must be Mr. Garrett,' she challenged. "'Mrs. Ross, I presume.' He felt like a penitent student summoned before the headmistress with a powerful urge to look at the floor. Instead, he met her steel gaze. He was prepared to apologize, to commiserate, even to defend himself to a degree. He wasn't prepared for the words she spoke. "'She doesn't want to see you.' It was ice water in the face. He gasped before he could help it. "'She told me. She doesn't want to see you,' the hard voice repeated. Then, realizing the literal implication of her pronouncement, she rephrased it. "'She doesn't want you around. Please respect her wishes.' He gave a furtive look toward the closed door. She forestalled him with a raised hand. A confrontation will not help my daughter. Perhaps that doesn't matter to you, but it does to me. The unfairness of the accusation was a fresh wound. He slumped against the wall, cradling his arms and trying to restore some order to the chaos of his brain. In a voice that barely reached her, he said, Your daughter is all that matters to me. The flint in her eyes softened, but she stood firm. She doesn't want you here. Is there really anything more to say? There wasn't. The quiet words brought an end to what he'd thought was a new dawn in his life. The brief sun had already set, and night had fallen again. For no logical reason he could think of, he found himself steering toward the CNIB on York Street. The director of services and operations, Audrey Raines, led him back to her office, her expensive wool skirt suit was the uniform of an office professional, while her tidy crop of short white hair and smile-creased skin were her badges as a grandmother. Candace was very fond of her. That was enough to earn Lee's trust. "'How is Candace?' she asked. "'I thought I might ask you that,' he replied. He hadn't meant to be mysterious, but he saw the rise of her eyebrows. "'We haven't heard from her today.' Yesterday she told me what the doctors think, but I could sense she wasn't telling me everything. Is it worse than she said? I don't think that's it. The burns are painful, but expected to heal well. Her eyes are another story. She's not optimistic about them. You'd probably know more about that than I would. I haven't talked to her today. The silence prompted him to go on. I haven't seen her because she doesn't want to see me, her mother told me. Audrey Raines looked shocked. "'But I know how much she cares for you. It was impossible to miss. She practically glowed when she told us you were going away for the weekend. What happened? What's going on?' He told her. She took his confession like a priest, in silence, her eyes a mixture of shock and sympathy. "'I'd kept it all from Candace until the night before the explosion,' he said. "'She was furious at first, but I was sure she'd forgiven me. Until I cost her her sight.' Oh, God, what a tragedy! She turned sympathetic eyes to him. But you didn't blind her, Mr. Garrett. She knows that. 
Candace is a very forgiving person. You'll have to be patient with her, very patient. Losing your sight isn't like losing a loved one. She leaned forward, hands clasped together. When someone you care about dies, you grieve, and then eventually, someday, somehow, you move on. We always say their memory will be with us every moment for the rest of our lives, but it's not really true. Memories do fade. It's part of how we cope and get on with our lives. But the loss of your sight is something you feel every time you get dressed, look for something to eat, wonder what time it is, or touch a face. Maybe you grieve a little each time. That's not to say that life without eyesight is miserable. I can't tell you how many people I've seen find their joy in life again, learn to do meaningful work, regain their self-esteem. That's what CNIB is all about. Candace knows that better than most. She'll recognize every stage that she goes through because she's seen them so often in others, and her training will cushion her a little. She's a strong woman. She will cope. I guarantee that. But, she held him with her eyes, willing him to listen, it will take time. He nodded, needing to believe her. But while her answer offered hope for Candace to regain a fruitful life, there was no guarantee that life would include him. What can I do? he asked quietly. It's impossible for us to imagine what she's going through right now, blinded because of someone's hatred. Yes, part of her must resent you for escaping while she paid the price. That's only human. But I think, she looked deep into his eyes, I think her biggest fear, the reason she's put a wall between you, is that she doesn't think you'll want her anymore. That you'll feel she can never be the woman she once was. She held a hand up to stop his denial. No, that's something you should consider very carefully, because she may very well be right. The suggestion shocked him, but how could he truly deny it? Could he really know how he'd feel a month or year from now? How long should I wait, he asked. I can't say, she sighed. But if you love her, don't give up on her. She's a wonderful woman. That hasn't changed. Whatever connection the two of you found is still there, and she will need you. It may be some time before she realizes that. Just be there for her when she does. That's the only advice I can give. I've never seen her as happy as she was the past couple of weeks. Abandoning that would be the real tragedy. Lee returned to his empty apartment for refuge, but the trials of the day weren't through with him. As he pulled the newspaper from his mailbox, a headline halfway down the page struck him like brass knuckles to the gut. Woman injured in explosion, and in smaller type, trap meant for a radio announcer. Stunned, he scanned the columns of print. The reporter had done his homework. The story told of the harassment, the explosion, even a reference to the snowmobile attack. There were details hardly anyone knew, except the police. He nearly crushed the phone as he punched Davis's cell phone number. It didn't come from me, she protested. I'm furious, too. It was important to the case that certain details would only be known by the perpetrators. Now that's shot to hell. It was Dieter, wasn't it? Answer me. I have no proof of that. God damn it to hell, I'll have the bastard's balls for this. Yeah, good luck with that. Her voice was heavy with defeat. He slammed the phone into the cradle, but the sound he'd heard in Davis's voice made him stop before he dialed the chief's number. The chief's hands would be tied unless there was proof, proof that the sergeant had accessed case files that should have been beyond his authority. If he had, that would implicate Davis herself. And how could they prove it was Dieter who'd given the story to her a reporter? The paper would never reveal its source. 
Certainly not unless the story was false. It wasn't. It was simply a damning truth. As he sat on the edge of the sofa, shaking with rage, the phone made him jump. It was Larry Wise. Lee, what the fuck's going on? What I'm reading in the star? Is it true? Yeah, Larry, somebody's been trying to kill me. You heard Maddie in the staff meeting. But Jesus Christ, she didn't say anything about this snowmobile thing. Now this woman gets hurt, and all of our listeners find out about this from reading the goddamn newspaper. For a moment, Lee couldn't absorb what Wise was saying. Then his head reeled as if the phone had struck him. What the fuck is that supposed to mean, he spat. You self-serving prick. A woman is nearly killed, and all you care about is that your sorry ass didn't get the scoop? Go fuck yourself. He slammed the phone down for the second time in five minutes. He thought he heard it crack and was glad, but it didn't exorcise his outrage. He lurched into the kitchen and swept the stack of dirty dishes crashing onto the floor. He hurled the ceramic sugar container at the door, followed it with the cream pitcher, delighting at the music of destruction. He wrenched a chair into the air and flung it toward the wall, taking out the ceiling light fixture. As the room fell dark, he staggered backward, gasping in impotent fury, fell over the arm of the love seat, and lay sprawled amid the wreckage of his life. Eventually the rage subsided. His brain began to function again, dulled but reluctantly aware. Life continued, so it had to be faced. Questions needed to be answered. Hard questions. Painful questions. Did he still love Candace? Even after she had been sacrificed in his place? Did he still desire her, though her lovely skin might be scarred forever and those warm eyes were now barren? He tried to picture a life together a life with a woman who would never again see his face or the faces of their children if they had any. And each time she felt that loss, she would taste its unfairness all over again and might well blame him. Could he live a lifetime bearing that loss and that guilt every time he looked at her, to know what he had cost her? He knew the first answer. It was as clear as the winter sky. He still loved her and would always love her. Could he endure the lifelong burden of her pain and his ever-present remorse? No, he wasn't that strong. His soul curled in upon itself. He had tasted life as it could be, should be, and now it had been stolen from him. Maybe he would never regain what had been taken, but he would make someone pay. He hugged his hatred to him like a prize. Ellis was expecting his call. Of course he should take time off. He should get counseling, too. The company would pay for it if government health insurance didn't. She asked what he was going to do, and he gave her a lie that satisfied her. She wished him luck. He had one more call to make after that. It twisted his guts inside out to tell Michaela. She was stunned by the knowledge that he could have faced such torment without her even being aware of it. She didn't get angry, though she had every right to. Instead, he could sense the pain that she felt for him. Under other circumstances, he might have considered that a breakthrough. Take good care of Sarah and Jason for me, especially if... No! Don't say that! Don't even think it! Anyway, I'll be out of touch for a while. If you need me, you'll have to leave a message on my machine and I'll check it when I can. What are you going to do? He couldn't lie to her. Not anymore. I'm going to drop out of sight... Go underground. Maybe there's a way to track down these bastards. She gasped. Are you serious? I'm not trying to play Hollywood hero. Don't worry. 
I wouldn't know how to use a gun even if I could get one, but at least I can make myself hard to find. At best, I don't know. Maybe I'll turn up something. I only know that I can't spend my life running away, afraid that the people I care about might end up in the line of fire. He hoped she understood that he was including her. Lee, please, don't do this. You said it yourself. It isn't a movie. I know that, Michaela. In reality, the cops didn't solve every case. The bad guys sometimes weren't stopped in the nick of time, and the hero didn't always survive. He heard a sound and realized with a shock that she was crying. He couldn't think of anything to say. If I can't stop you, she said finally, what can I do to help? Always practical, she told him how to get some visa checks for an inactive visa account she'd never closed. That would provide money for an emergency while being worthless to a street thief. She advised him to take only his driver's license and cash in a soft cloth pouch pinned inside the front of his briefs, accessible but liable to be missed by a mugger. She even suggested costume makeup from a novelty store to give him the sunken eyes and dulled complexion of the dissipated and smudge away the whiteness of his perfect teeth. Her ingenuity surprised him. Lee, she said finally, please be careful. For me, for Jason and Sarah. They've lost enough already. And for your lady friend, too. Don't let everything be taken away from her. You still have a chance for happiness together. Don't throw it away, please. He thanked her inadequately and hung up the phone. The house looked deserted with no van in the driveway, but Paul answered the door. Lee, hi. Um, my uncle's not home, and this time he said he'd be really mad if I let anybody in. That's okay, Paul. I just wanted to drop off a present for you. It's kind of out of season, but maybe you can find a place to kick it around until the weather warms up. He put the round shape into the boy's outstretched hands. His attempts to cover it with wrapping paper had been a failure. A ball? It's a soccer ball, but this one's a little different. Here. Lee hunted for the switch and activated it. A high-pitched beep began. Whoa! For blind people, right? So I can tell where it is? That's the idea. You can get a beeping baseball, too, but something tells me that could mean broken windows in the winter time. He switched off the beep. The light of the boy's smile warmed him. I understand you used to be a real athlete. It'd be a shame to give that up. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Then the smile dimmed. I heard Ms. Ross got hurt. Is it true? Is she really blind? Yeah. Lee felt his throat start to close and coughed it open. Yes, she's blind. But otherwise, they say she'll be okay. The man and the boy stood in silence, each with their own thoughts. Maybe I can help her now, Paul said. Lee didn't trust himself to speak. The few items he planned to take were ready. As he gave a last look around his room, the phone rang. He hadn't wanted to talk to Davis about his plan. He knew she wouldn't understand. You're crazy. You can't do that, she snapped. I can have our uniforms watch for you and spoil your cloak-and-dagger act. And then what, he said, bring me back to my cage where the hunters know just where to find me? She had no response to that. He knew she was angry because she cared. You've got to let me know where you are. I can't. You'd be forced to keep a record of it, and I can't risk Dieter finding out. If you learn anything more, leave me a message. Just remember that if the skins realize I've dropped out of sight, they might think of checking my answering machine, too. I'll call you if I get a chance. For 
God's sake, at least take a cell phone. I can get you one. He thought hard. If he went to the police station for it, she'd try to talk him out of what he was doing, and might even find some legal trick to keep him out of harm's way. Besides, he was pretty sure a phone in his pocket wouldn't fit his image of a street guy down to his last few bucks. Please, Davis, he said, instead of blocking me, help me. Tell me what I need to know to keep from getting killed. Maybe even how to look for these bastards. Find out for me where those informants hang out. I promise I won't try to contact them without your permission or do anything that would compromise them. That's what I was calling to tell you, she said in a thick voice. We've lost them. Their police handlers put pressure on them, like I told you. Now they've vanished, haven't been seen for days. She sounded sick. We think they might be dead. In Chapter 22 of Dead Air, Lee Garrett goes undercover as a street person, desperate to find some way of learning the identity of his attackers, but he has his work cut out for him in the difficult world of the streets. I invite you to drop by my website, scottoverton.ca, to learn more about the world of Dead Air, or pick up a copy for yourself. Audionautics.com supplies our music, and the text is read by me, Scott Overton. <laughs>